Welcome to the Halloween Spectacular Edition of Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. Movies in the 1940s and 50s typically began with a cartoon or a newsreel, and uh, we'll have some of both boiled into tonight's first feature, The Life of Riley. It was a natural for the writers of The Life of Riley to send the bumbling Chester A. Riley into a haunted house for Halloween, but they added a twist in this particular episode, and that's all I'm going to say about this haunted house edition of The Life of Riley. It comes from October 29th, 1944. Here he is! In the movie Wake Island, he was the Brooklyn Marine. In the broad with two yanks, he's Biff the private. But tonight, he's just an overgrown kid anxiously waiting for Halloween. I'll never forget when I was just a boy, every Halloween, my father used to stick me in the front window. We were too poor to buy a pumpkin. <laughs> the American Meat Institute presents William Bendix in the Life of Riley. The meat people of America, providing a great food for a great nation. If you put all of America's meat retailers together in one city, it would make another city as big as Indianapolis. There are more than 400,000 meat retailers in this country. Another important link in the chain that gives you good, fresh meat every day, America. And now, on behalf of all those engaged in supplying meat to the nation, the American Meat Institute presents The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. By day, Riley is engaged in the serious business of war production as a riveter in a California aircraft plant. But tonight we see his less serious side. It's two nights before Halloween, and Riley is full of the spirit of the thing. It's quite dark out, and Riley's son, Junior, is just returning from a meeting of the young wildcats, his club, in a very thoughtful mood. Is that you, Posh? Yeah, Junior. What are you doing hiding on the back porch? Listen, peek in the kitchen window and see what your mother's doing. She's washing the supper dishes. Say, Pop, what no. are you doing with that false face on? You're Mickey Mouse, huh? No, I'm not Mickey Mouse. I'm the rat man of Blood Bucket Castle. <laughs> oh, at the dime store they sell those false faces for Mickey Mouse. Never mind. I bet your mother will think I'm the rat man. Oh, you gotta play a trick on Mom? Yeah. You see, last night we saw a horror picture about a nice, gruesome character, the Rat Man. He was a vampire. Has lunch on people's necks. <laughs> oh, he ain't a rat. He's a bat. Oh, well, he's very depressing. Anyway, afterwards, your mom was so scared something had popped out of a doorway at her, she walked all the way home in the middle of the street. <laughs> mom said you made her walk out there. No, I... <laughs> I just invited her out in the street because it ain't polite to leave a lady walking on the sidewalk all alone. <laughs> you watch now when I scratch at the door and she opens it up and sees me in this thing. Okay, Bob, go ahead. Okay, all I hope is she don't faint. <laughs> watch now. Bob, bats don't growl, they squeak. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
there. We got her just in <laughs> Well, I never. It's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Junior. Junior, go get your father some cheese. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> you sure fooled her, Pop. Yeah. Well, they don't make these masks as good as they used to. Or else maybe I got a very strong personality and it leaks through, probably. Well, isn't it a little early for Halloween tricks, Riley? Well, it don't hurt to get a head start. Halloween's my favorite holiday. Look, Junior, there's something else I bought at the Five and Dime. You see this book? Ghost Stories. Well, thanks, Pop, but I don't want to read any ghost stories tonight. What's the matter? You don't believe in ghosts, do you? No, I don't believe in ghosts, but I don't want to read anything that might change my mind. <laughs> Too many people think there's ghosts now. Say, Dumper, what's the matter with him? Well, I don't know. Ever since he came home from school today, he's been asking me if I believe in haunted houses. <laughs> what a question. With the housing shortage, as sure as it is, who's going to leave a house empty for spooks? <laughs> well, there's one empty house up on Chestnut Hill, Riley. You know, the old Sherwin place. Some people say that's haunted. Yeah? Mrs. Cornwell claims she saw a pale, white face at the window, too. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, but Mrs. Cornwell's a great one for ghosts. She's always holding seances and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that Cornwell kid's in Junior's club, too. I bet he's got our boy believing in ghosts. Well, I'm going to have a head-to-head talk with Junior. <laughs> So you see, Junior, if I tell you there's no ghost, you can take my word for it. After all, I've been your father for 13 years, ain't I? Oh, sure, Pop. Uh, if there aren't any ghosts, what haunts haunted houses? Listen, Junior, nothing haunts haunted houses. Oh, yes, they do, Pop. Johnny Cornwall's mother proved the house was haunted. How did she? She said she saw a ghost face in the window uh-huh. of the old Sherwin house. It was a horrible face, too. Oh, well, Mrs. Cornwell must have seen her own reflection. <laughs> There's a dame should walk into a room backwards and break her face to you slowly. <laughs> oh, then, Pop, then she came home and held a seance. She asked if what she saw was the ghost of Alice Sherwin, and she got three raps on the table. Well, that means yes in ghost language. <laughs> Fine language. All they can do is knock. They ought to be newspaper columnists. (laughs) You better not make fun of ghosts, Pop. Look, Junior, would you sooner believe a ghost than your old man? No, Pop. Uh, But if the ghost said it was a ghost, it ought to know. Okay, I can see you're a septic. (laughs) Now, we'll have a seance right here to prove what Mrs. Cornwell saw wasn't that Sherwin girl's ghost. Come on, put your hands up on his table. Gosh, Papa, are you going to ask a ghost to rap? I'll show you. I'll put my hands on there, too. See? Okay, now I'll ask something. Are there any ghosts? See? No answer. No ghosts. Nah, Pop. You have to ask for raps. Two means no. Three raps means yes. Oh, well, okay. Two raps for no, three for yes. Now, I'll ask him again. Did uh, Mrs. Cornwell see a ghost up at Sherwin's old haunted house? Gosh, Pop, it said no. See, that proves it. Mrs. Cornwell's a phony. 
ask them again if there are any ghosts. Okay. Are there any ghosts? Wrap two for no. See that? The ghosts themselves say there aren't any ghosts. That proves it. <laughs> Wait a minute, Pop. Now, How could a ghost wrap two for no if there aren't any ghosts? Well, that's very simple. The, the... <laughs> I was just kidding, Sonny. I did that wrapping myself. Honestly. Well, your hands were on the table. Yeah, but my feet weren't. Look at I just kicked up under that table with my foot like this. <laughs> oh, Pop. I bet you wouldn't kid around like that in a genuine haunted house like the Sherwin place. Well, sure I would, only I can't because I ain't going there. Would you be scared to go if you were going? Me? No. Oh, that's good, Pop. No, I ain't scared to go neither. How do you mean? Well, down at my club tonight, we got to talking what we do Halloween. So we made it up we'd go find out if Sherwin's old house was haunted or if it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I pity any ghosts when them young wildcats get in that house. <laughs> oh, we ain't all going inside, Pop. Just one of us got elected to go inside. The poor guy who got the short straw. <laughs> who got it? Well, I did. Oh, I see. Well, well, Junior, you show him you know there aren't any ghosts in there. I'm proud of you, Junior, walking in there all alone. I think that's Well, a... I won't be all alone. I made up a rule the fellow who had to go in could take in another fella, his best friend. Well, that's okay, too. If the guy you picked is a real friend, he'll go like a shot. Who'd you pick? I picked you, Pop. <laughs> well, I bet that... Uh... <laughs> uh... Me! Uh... Look, Junior, I'm, I'm probably going to be very busy and... Pop, you ain't scared to go, are you? Well, no, but... The... And you are my best friend, aren't you? Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I am. Actually, the, the saying is that your mother is your best friend. <laughs> well, I couldn't ask Mom to go. I'm sure glad you're coming with me. Yeah, me too, Junior. <laughs> As Lord Twitcher stood there in the dark hall of the great lonely house, he could feel something evil in the very air. A cold wind brushed his cheek, and an icy hand seemed to touch his spine. Suddenly, he saw the thing, and then he heard a sound, a low, wailing sound. <laughs> Who's that? It's only me, dear. Did I startle you? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> I was just reading this book here. Oh, the ghost stories you bought Junior, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Such nonsense. <laughs> oh, my, it's a quiet Halloween, isn't it? What are all those boys in Junior's club are doing tonight? I know what they're doing. They're all sitting over across from our house right now on the fence. Like a row of buzzards waiting for us to come out. <laughs> oh, are they going to the house with you? Oh, they're going as far as the gate of the place to make sure we go in. Oh, but you're not nervous about going, are you, dear? You don't believe in ghosts? Well, no. You don't believe in them either, do you, Peg? <laughs> no. 
But uh, there is something queer about that house. Hmm? I wonder what did become of that poor Alice Sherwin. Well, if nobody knows, I don't want to find out. <laughs> what did they say happened to her? Oh, awfully sad story. She was a bride, you know, beautiful girl. Well, they were on their honeymoon in Manila. He was a captain in the Navy. She and her husband were going to come home and live in that old house. Then, well, he was lost in an air raid. Some say they were both killed together. Others say that she followed him because she didn't want to live without him. Well, anyhow, the house stands there empty, waiting for the bride and bridegroom that never came to live in it. People ought to leave the place alone. And I'm one of the people. Well, after you go there tonight, maybe people will stop talking and gossiping about the house. Because you'll prove there's nothing there. Yeah, maybe. Now, what was all that talk about seeing lights and faces around the place? Oh, just talk, I suppose. Yeah. But they do say that they saw a woman's figure at the window in the attic. Pop! Uh, Junior! What's the idea of sneaking in like that? It's time to go, Pop. I... Huh? <laughs> oh. Well... Yes. Well, okay, Junior. Goodbye, Dumplin'. Goodbye, boys. Sure dark out, isn't it, Pop? Yeah. Pop? Well? That Sherwin house we're going to, it, it can't be really haunted, can it? No. But it's funny that people have seen a ghost in there. Yeah, well, look, Junior, well, when we get in that house, you, you do just like I do. You won't see no ghosts. Oh. What are you going to do, Pop? I'm going to keep my eyes shut. <laughs> Well, not even Nervous Riley has any idea of what's in store for him as he and Junior head for the mysterious old Sherwin place. We'll rejoin them in just a moment. Right now, this is Ken Niles speaking for meat. The other day in a meat market, Mrs. Niles overheard a woman say, Joe, I hear all this talk about braising meat, but just what meats do you braise? Well, Joe the meat man told her, of course, and out of that comes this excellent thought. Maybe some of you would like a little review of the braising cuts of beef. Well, in the first place, braising is an ideal way of preparing the lean, point-free beef coming on the market these days in order to bring out all its fine flavor and tenderness. And here are the favorite braising cuts. Popular pot roast, juicy Swiss steak, tasty flank chops, easily cooked short ribs, country fried steaks, and... Oh, but why go on? My mouth is watering so much I can hardly talk now. But remember, braising is long cooking over low heat. And that's the way to good gravy, too. After all, whether you braise, roast, or broil meat, you are getting essential, highest-quality proteins for which meat is nutritionally noted. Meat is a yardstick of protein foods because meat measures up to every protein need. And now back to The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. It's just midnight, a very dark midnight. Even the moon is hiding on this Halloween. 
Riley and his son, Junior, are just approaching the rusty iron gate that guards the old Sherwin house, which is said to be haunted. Listen. There's the gate, Pop. Let's go in. Uh, Maybe the gate's locked so we can't get in. (laughs) Gee, wouldn't that be too bad? (laughs) We've got to get in, Pop. The gang's followed us all the way from town, and they're still watching. Uh, Yeah, they trail us like sharks after a sinking ship. Let's go in, Pop. Okay. What's that? The gate. The the hinges are all rusty. Maybe we ought to go back to town and get some oil, huh? (laughs) Come on in the garden, Pop. Gosh, it's dark. Yeah. Well, follow me, Junior. Where are you? Right behind you. (laughs) Here. Give me your hand. I see the house, Pop. The moon's coming out of a cloud. Yeah. Junior. Huh? What's that over there? Huh? Uh, I think that's your shadow, Pop. (laughs) If that's my shadow, why is it moving while I'm standing still? Pop, it's coming this way. And since when does a shadow make footsteps? Good evening, Riley. Wait, Pop. It's your friend, Mr. O'Dell, the undertaker. I do. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, how are you, Digger? I never thought I'd be glad to... (laughs) Never thought I'd be glad to see an undertaker. You're looking fine, Riley. Very natural. (laughs) Tell me, what are you doing here around the old Sherwin house? Oh, uh, well, nothing, Digger. We're just having some fun on Halloween. Ah, Halloween. I adore Halloween. It's so gay. (laughs) Digger, do do you hang around this old house much? Yes, indeed. It's one of my favorite haunts. Haunts? Listen, you don't think there's anything in there, do you? Who knows? Sometimes as I stroll through this old garden... I feel unseen eyes follow me. You do, huh? Riley, you're not going inside the house. Well, we thought we might drop in a minute. I could be talked out of it. (laughs) Take my advice, Riley. Remain outside. Enjoy the beautiful flowers. They're my favorite flowers. Lilies. Digger, when you talk about lilies, please don't stare at my chest. Strange how some people have no interest in horticulture. In my profession, we have a saying. You may not like flowers at first, but eventually they grow on you. (laughs) By the way, Riley... How tall are you? Well, I'm about five feet. Uh, uh, why? I'd like to borrow your overcoat Saturday. To wear at the football game. Oh, 
Sure, sure. I'll pick it up at one o'clock. Uh-huh. I want to get to the game before they kick off. <laughs> the door to the house, Pop. It's open. Well, leave it open. Why? Uh, well, one thing, Junior, nobody will never be able to say your old man was a coward. Let's go in. Now let's go out. <laughs> Wait, Pop. We've only been in one room. We're supposed to go through the whole house. As far as I'm concerned, this is a one-room house. Come on. <laughs> Wait, Pop. What for? I... I told the kids you didn't believe in ghosts, and, and I said we'd have another seance like we did at home. Junior, a blood relationship can only be stretched so far. <laughs> oh, Pop, you, you said you'd do it in a haunted house, and, and if we didn't hear anything, it would prove there wasn't any you-know around here. I already proved there wasn't any you-know around here. <laughs> you didn't do it right. Well, I... I found out for a seance... The medium has to be tied in a chair so it can't pull no tricks. Well, okay, Junior. I'd be glad to let you tie me up. Only there ain't no rope. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> I brought some rope, Pop. That was swell of you, Junior. I'll remember this. Go ahead, tie me. <laughs> Can you move your hands or feet? No, you tied me so tight, Dan Green is sitting in. <laughs> now, stand over by the window where I can see you. Well, here I am, Pop. Ah, you'll see, Junior. There won't be any wraps this time. Hope you're right, Pop. Of course I'm right. How can there be any wraps when I'm tied up too tight to wrap? And I also got my eye on you. Well, go ahead, then. Ask if there's any ghosts here. Okay, now. If there's any ghosts here, wrap two times. If there ain't, don't bother. No raps. Oh, now say, if there are any ghosts, to rap three times. Uh, okay, but there won't be any. If there are any ghosts, rap three times. Uh, uh, Junior, did, did you do that? Uh, I didn't. Didn't you? Frankly, no. <laughs> Junior! Where are you going? Out the window. Come on. Don't come back. Untie me, Junior. I can't get this chair through that window. Junior. Oh, Bob. Bob. Bob, I can't get the nuts loose. Well, I better I... go get a knife. Why Junior, don't go. Don't... don't forget to come back. I had to open my big mouth for wraps, and I got wraps. Fine thing, all alone in a house with a... Uh, what's that? Who's that? What are you doing in my house? I, I must be going crazy. Why did you come here? I, I wouldn't stay, lady, only I got tied up. <laughs> I will loosen the knot. Yeah, but, uh, well, thanks. Who, who are you? 
I am Alice Sherwin. Now I know I'm crazy. I'm talking to a ghost. Oh, Please, don't tell anyone I'm here. I, I only want to be left alone here in my house. I got a knife and... Pop, you're untied. Yeah. And it was the ghost that done it. Wait a minute. Her hands. They weren't no ghost's hands. Junior, you go outside and wait for me. What are you going to do, Pop? I'm going to have another talk with that that lady ghost. Why did you want to see me, Mr. Riley? Well, when I, when I figured out you wasn't a ghost, I got to thinking how lonesome you must be in this house all alone. So I thought maybe you'd like to take a stroll over to my house and meet my family. Oh, thank you, but oh, I... If you'd rather not talk, I'll go away. No, don't go yet. I mustn't be rude to my first guest in so long. Oh, thanks. Must be kind of a shock when the first man you see in so long looks like I do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your family, Mr. Riley. Well, my, my family's named Riley after me. <laughs> Very nice people, too. That was my son, Junior, that was with me tonight. It must be wonderful to have a son. Oh, it's great. I got a daughter, too. A girl. <laughs> she's, she's 16 now. The boy's 13, but getting older all the time. <laughs> then there's, there's Peg, that's my wife. She's older than the kids, but younger than me. <laughs> Say, in that picture of you over the fireplace, I guess that fellow with you, that's your husband. Huh? Yes. That's Robert. He's a good-looking fellow. Maybe you'd rather not talk about him, though. Silence won't bring him back. My wife told me about what... what happened... Of course, she didn't know the part about your being here. I don't want anyone to know. I want to stay here, alone, with his memory. It's the least I can do in loyalty to him. Oh. You mean you, you think that's what he'd want you to do? Of course. Does that surprise you? Well, yes, ma'am, it does. I didn't know him, but... From his picture there, I know he was a swell guy. I wouldn't think he'd want you locked up here, throwing the rest of your life away. Do you think any man wants the wife he loved to forget him in in a year or ever? Well, no, but there's, there's different ways of remembering. I don't understand. You, you can make his dying count for something by helping to beat the people who started this war and teaching the world that... It won't pay to ever start another. You think that I could help end this war? Sure. Everybody can do something. The only thing a person can't do is... is do nothing. Oh, I... I guess you think I've been 
very selfish, Mr. Riley. Oh, no. No, you've been shut up in this empty house. You just didn't know what was going on. The people I can't understand are the ones who do know and still don't care. Most people live in something worse than an empty house. They live in an empty brain. Well, I'm not one of them, Mr. Riley. You... You've given me something to think about. And I'm very grateful. Oh, well... Gee, that's fine. Well, I guess I'll be going. I'm sure glad you ain't no ghost. Of course, I ain't actually scared of ghosts because I know there ain't no ghosts. Are there? <laughs> of course not. But, you know, Mrs. Sherwin, it, it is kind of dark out in that garden, isn't it? Would you mind walking me to the gate? <laughs> Well, I think we can all agree with Riley that none of us here at home can sit this war out. The war isn't over in Europe, the war isn't over in the South Pacific, and the war isn't over in America's kitchens. You women who have signed up for the duration to keep health-giving meals on America's tables just can't pick out the meat you want and be sure of getting it every time these days. The needs of war are bound to make the varieties and quantities your meat man has vary from day to day. So let's all make good meals out of whatever meats are on hand. And remember this. All meats, regardless of cut or kind, have the same complete, highest quality, good-eating proteins that make meat a yardstick of protein foods. This statement and all statements regarding the nutritional value of meat made on this program are accepted by the Council on Foods and Nutrition of the American Medical Association. Hiya, Dumplin'. Hey, I, I got some big news about Halloween. Yes? Well, you, you, you know, I, I think I'm going to open up a one-man recruiting outfit. I'm going to recruit waves, wax, spars, and spooks. Tune <laughs> in the Life of Riley, starring William Bendix, next week at this time. This is Ken Niles saying, see you next week. This is the Blue Network. A comedy that took a serious twist at the end to remind Americans that they should all be part of the war effort. Not the easiest thing to pull off for the writers, or William Bendix for that matter. That was The Life of Riley with Haunted House from October 29, 1944. Brought to you by a major player during World War II, the American Meat Institute. We'll venture further into Halloween with Escape next on Skywave Audio Theater. Montague R. James was a medievalist, and without stretching far, he wrote ghost stories, lots of them. And not just any kind, he wrote ghost stories about unassuming academicians who got caught up in ancient and frightening beliefs and rituals. Stories that grew out of ordinary details and quickly became extraordinary. Among Montague R. James' stories is Casting the Runes, which begins with something as mundane as the review of an academic paper and develops into pursuit and terror. John McIntyre stars in Escape from November 19, 1947. This is Casting the Runes. Thank you. 
had a hard day at the office? Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. It is midnight, and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to London and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse, as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes. My name is Edward Dudding. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse, a hex, could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe, secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation. Blast it all, Downing. I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me. <laughs> Sorry, old chap. It's really me he'd like to get at. As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper. You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no. As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't, and for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing. I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy. It was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic, and such rot actually exists. I think the man really believes it. Undoubtedly he does, and that's what I mean. He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere, and in his whole career he's written only two things. This paper and a history of witchcraft published ten years ago. Yes, of course. I remember now. So that's the man. Yes, hmm? and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. 
There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go. Well, it does sound a bit queer, but... Not queer, Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work. Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Mm -hmm. This may sound fantastic to you, but, well... John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead. Hmm. But, Alfred, what's the connection? Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. <laughs> Come now, Alfred. Jolly, you're not suggesting... Oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden. <laughs> oh, Alfred. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched, panting, on the branch of a tree with another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer. I'd almost forgotten the incident when... A few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card advertisements. The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say, Here now, what can that one be advertising? I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat. In memory of John Addington, died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree... Three months were allowed. Blimey, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know. But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Carswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I had been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. Edward Dunning. You are allowed three months. I swung around in my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout, elderly gentleman standing in front of me. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slid across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir. Good afternoon. He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. 
but there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant. Uh, yes, Mr. Dunning? Uh, did you notice that gentleman I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I uh, can... Uh, no. No, thank you. It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew. What would be his next move? What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk, and trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor. I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, something like terming poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well, what could have caused it? Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and had it for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street. Was this the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house, and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed, but almost immediately I thought I heard something. My study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse. But the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time. I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it, not human at all. I fled from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in a spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day. Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything wrong? I... I don't know, Alfred. I... Uh, yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet? I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something, but... Like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward. Must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't, I don't know what to think. John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man, Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly. Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. 
It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night. Where he had broke and run. It must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer. Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer and closer. I confess, I broke and ran, ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship. There's no need to run, sir. The 840 won't be along for another five minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother. Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, uh, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession. Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Uh, just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book. And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does, but tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat when a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his. The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to lead through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic. Runes. Runes, of course. Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the program and blew it straight into the fire. Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it. Well, there was nothing to be done then. No, perhaps not. But do you know what runic letters mean? Well, they're old pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right. Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, what do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a, a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. 
And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you. To give it back without his knowing it. I don't believe that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know. Perhaps his fear of the runes, perhaps brooding about it, becoming neurotic, thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things that weren't there. Perhaps his own mind drove him to death. And what's the difference once you're dead? No difference at all. Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish. Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it in my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Oh, thank heaven. If it were lost or destroyed, like your brother's... Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes. Look at it. It's identical with the one John got. I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of fool's cap spells death for its possessor. It spells death for you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that it doesn't... If he doesn't know he's received it, that means we can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That will take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It will alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months. That's what the warning said. We've got to make good on this, Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now he must not escape. I dare not go near Carswell. So Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the rooms, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found a calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Now I knew the fate.
face of my terror. And it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight, it roamed the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plan. I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on Earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly, I felt that warm gust of air. I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud banging. No, no, not yet. I still got one day more. Not yet. Man, what is it? It was you. You came knocking on the door. Your footsteps. Yes, of course. Oh, thank heaven. I, I thought I... I look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Carswell leaves Victoria Station by boat train tonight at 10. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there and be sure to bring the paper. Yes. Yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. This Harrington. Suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there, and you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform at Croydon, my mind, in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. It was a strange ride. Carswell and I seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy, but that was impossible. The moments dragged tortuously. No one moved. Then, suddenly, Carswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir. Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No. Hardly. I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Carswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them. When I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning in them. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. 
I muttered a prayer of thanks. I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat, for something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Carswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Carswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase all came tumbling down upon Carswell. What the devil? Oh, I say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. You clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Well, it was my only chance. Carswell stood facing anyway? Harrington. I, I reached down, got the ticket case, That's and with trembling fingers slid the paper into the pocket. He turned sharply to me, and I extended the case toward him. Excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when... Yes, I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. On the railway pier at Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped me, him. Sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt... Sorry, sir. It must have been your rugs. My mistake. Come on, Dunny. Our job's done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps, no warm gusts of air, nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free, although this was to have been my last day on Earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax. Well, Dunning, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know. Not yet. Well, here. Look at it. On the second page. There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire. Uh, of course, it could have been an accident. Yes. Yes, it could have been. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson 
And tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James. Adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel. With John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Jan Wolf as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Coswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are trapped in a hidden valley, high in the Andes, walled in by sheer rock precipices. And surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. John McIntyre is a man under a spell and a deadly game of tag in Casting the Runes, one of the many ghost stories of Montague R. James. Also in the mix, Edmund Gwynn. You may have recognized his voice as that of Chris Kringle in the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street. And, of course, there were escape mainstays William Conrad and others. Our Halloween banquet continues with Dracula. Next, this is Skywave Audio Theater. The author was best known as the business manager of the Lyceum Theater. He liked to spend time in the Yorkshire seaside town of Whitby and was also a frequent visitor to Scotland. On the coast of Aberdeenshire, the seascape around Slane's Castle there stoked his imagination, and so did the castle's octagonal hall, which matches the description of the octagonal room in Castle Dracula. The setting and Bram Stoker's uh, conversations with a Hungarian traveler who told him stories of dark doings in the Carpathian Mountains that run through much of Eastern Europe, well, mix all of that together. And the result in 1897 was Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. And the 22-year-old Orson Welles chose it for the first broadcast of Mercury Theater on the Air. The first show was supposed to be Treasure Island, but at the last minute, Welles pulled a switch. He gave writer John Hausman a copy of Bram Stoker's book with passages underlined, passages to be included in the script of Dracula. And as the year date approached, uh, they retreated to an all-night eatery on 59th Street in New York and thrashed out a script. Seventeen hours later, they had it. And so we have tonight's broadcast, which comes to us from July 11th, 1938. This is the debut of Mercury Theater on the Air. Dracula. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel, Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda, and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated. 
so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand forth as simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. It was signed, Dracula. Bukovina! Couch for Bukovina! The road was rough, but still we seemed to fly over it with feverish haste. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some excitement among the passengers. They kept speaking to the driver and looking at me and urging him on to greater speed. The crazy coach rocked on its great leather string. The mountains seemed to come nearer to us on either side. Coachman! Coachman! What is it? Where are we? You are nearing your destination, young hare. This is the Borga Pass. There were black, rolling clouds overhead, and in the air, the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. Now, we were through the path. The young hare is not expected after all. You are early tonight, my friend. A calèche with four horses are drawn up beside us. Let me help you, sir. The coachman smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. We began to move. I looked back. The coach and its load of passengers had vanished from sight. We swept into the darkness of the past. I struck a match. It was within a few minutes of midnight. And then... A dog began to howl somewhere far down the road. The wind was rising, moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees flashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though, as though they were closing round us every side. We kept on ascending, always ascending. The howling of wolves was growing less. Presently, it ceased altogether. And just then, the moon broke through the black clouds, and by its light, I, I saw around us a ring of wolves running alongside the carriage in silence, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long, sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? 
I am Dracula. His face was strong, very strong, aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Mm. You hear me, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Mm. Come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Uh, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it. During the night. This castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. I explored. There are doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked. The door to the great hall, the door to the courtyard, every door in the castle is closed, bolted against me. The castle of Dracula is a prison, and I am a prisoner. The next night, I couldn't sleep. So after a few hours, I got up and lighting my candle, I placed my shaving mirror on the dressing table and was just beginning to shave. You seem restless, Mr. Harker. I hadn't seen him, although the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I turned to the glass again. Count Dracula was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. It was blank. I started and cut myself on the side of the throat. The blood was trickling down my neck. Count, my mirror! The blood! The blood! Wipe the blood from your face, Mr. Harker. And take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. When I awoke, I found most of my things were gone. My passport, my notes, my letter of credit. I could find no trace of them anywhere. And my door is locked from the outside. June 20th. There is work of some kind going on in the castle. Now and then, I hear the faraway muffled sound of mattock and spade. And last night, the second of the predated letters which Dracula made me write, the second of that series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth went first. <coughs> Count Dracula. Yes, my young friend. Well, what of me? When am I free? When can I leave this place? Free? Mr. Harker, you're always free. You want to leave? Would you like to leave tonight? Yes, yes, in God's name. My dear young friend, not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. Come, follow me. Hmm, the door seems to be bolted. How strange. The door is locked. Well, in God's name, open it. As you will, Mr. Harker. You English have a proverb which is very close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Good night, Mr. Harker. The door is shut, Mr. Harker. I take it. You will remain. 
morning, June the 30th. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Oh, God preserve my sanity. I have never seen Count Dracula by day. At sunrise, at the first cock crow, he is gone. I... I don't understand these things. I only know that the wolves obey him, and that he is a man with hair on the palm of his hands, with sharp teeth, and no blood in his face. He casts no shadow. He cannot be seen in a glass. And he moves like a bat across the sheer face of the castle walls. He eats no food and is mortally afraid of the crucifix. As I write this, I hear in the courtyard the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. And there is in the passageway below a sound of heavy boxes being set down. Boxes shaped like coffins. And I know what they hold. Boxes are filled with holy earth from the chapel beneath the castle. Is the last box being nailed down. And now I hear the heavy feet tramping again. The door shut. The chains rattle. In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the track of whips. wagons have gone. I'm alone in the cat. I'm alone in the cat. I'm alone in the cat. I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Seward. Mr. Harker's journal terminates at this point. I now present in evidence a clipping dated August 8th of that year from the Yorkshire Telegraph from our correspondent in Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record is experienced here today. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but Saturday evening was fine. The band was playing. The piers were crowded with holidaymakers. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and there was a dead calm. There were but few lights at sea. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner under full canvas, which was seemingly going westward. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke. And there, with all sails set, was the foreign schooner rushing with terrific speed toward the shore. A searchlight was turned on her. And there, lashed to the helm, was a corpse. With drooping head, which swayed horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. A moment later, she crashed. And then a strange thing was seen. At the very instant she touched, a huge dog sprang up on deck from below and running forward, jumped from the bow onto the sand and making straight up the east cliff toward the graveyard, vanished into the night. The coast guard going aboard at dawn found the dead man fastened to a spoke of the wheel. Tightly clutched in one hand was a crucifix. The man must have been dead for quite two days. In the pocket of the dead man's coat was found a bottle carefully corked, containing a roll of paper. This proved to be an addendum to the ship's log. It was found on board only a small amount of cargo and that of a most unusual nature. Apparently the ship carried nothing but earth. Common earth. Packed away in wooden boxes. Shaped much like coffins. Log of the Demeter. Russian flag. 
Black Sea is still with me. July 6th. Finished taking in cargo, a queer cargo, boxes of earth. At noon, set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, four hands, two mates, cook, and myself, captain. July 11th. Entered Bosporus. At dark, passed through Dardanelles. Mate reported in morning that one of crew, Balyodin, was missing. Took Larbert watch eight bells last night. He was relieved by Chilean who came to his bunk. something aboard oh. the ship. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Don't laugh, Captain. In the rain last night, oh. a tall, thin man go up companion way and along the deck forward and disappeared. When I go to the bow, no one. And the hatchways, all closed. July 22nd. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails. No time be frightened. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well, July 24th. Last night, another hand was lost. Disappeared. My Galician, leave all March midnight. Then we never see him again. Oh, double watch now. If I don't take watch alone no more. Double watch. Double watch. July 29th. Had single watch tonight as crew too tired to double. When morning comes... Hey! Hey, Milo! Barangi! Barangi! It's Barangi, Milo! Barangi's gone! Barangi's gone! Barangi's gone like the us! Like all the us. The mate and I have agreed to go armed henceforth. July 30th. Last night. We are nearing England. Weather fine. All sails set. Captain! Captain! The man in the watch is sails are missing! Both missing! Now, only self and mate and one hand left to work ship. August 3rd. Two days of fog and not a sail sighted. At midnight, I went to relieve the man at wheel. And when I got to it, found no one there. It's here. I know it now. I thought, like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bars looking out. I gave it the knife and my knife went through it. What? Empty as air. What is it? What are you talking about? It's here and I'll find it. It's in the hold. In one of those boxes of earth. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. And see. He is mad. Stark raving mad. It's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as common earth. <laughs> He's there. Down in the cold. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. August 4th. I am all alone on my ship. And still the fog. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed. And in the dimness of the night, I saw it. I saw him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a sailor in the blue water. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. 
I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them I shall tie that which it dare not touch, my crucifix. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. God and the Blessed Virgin help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Telegram. Keyword perfect to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. Lucy West Tenra in alarming condition. Cannot diagnose. Come at once. Seward. Telegram. Van Helsing, Amsterdam to Seward perfect. I'm on my way to you. Please arrange the examination immediately my arrival from Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, I must now explain that six months before the events recorded here, I had become engaged to a young lady, Lucy Westenra. We were to have been married in the spring. My old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, arrived at four the next afternoon. I took him at once to Lucy's house. She lay in a bed asleep. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums. And the bones of her face stood out. Young miss is bad. Very bad. She must have blood or she will die. Yet she is not anemic. The qualitative analysis of her blood gives quite normal condition. It is strange. I do not like to think how strange. Look! My God, her throat, look! The black velvet band that she always wore had dragged up a little and showed a red mark on her throat. Just over the external jugular vein were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome-looking. The edges were white and worn-looking. Well? Well, what is it, Professor? What's wrong with her? Speak frankly. You can tell me the worst. I wish I could, Stuart. I wish I could. But I do not dare... But... Won't you tell me any, anything? I will tell you this. Your young lady is in a danger greater than death. You must believe me. If you leave her for one moment and harm befalls, you will not sleep easy thereafter. September 8th. I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. My dear, you can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise if any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. You will? Will you really? Then I'll sleep. I sat all night by her bedside. And she did not wake once during the night, although... A bows or a bat or something flapped almost angrily against the window panes. September 11th. Still quoting from my private journals. It's at this time that I received a message from Perfleet. Dread 10.20 p.m. St. John's Hospital. Serious complications. Case 891. Your immediate presence, London. Imperative. I had no choice. Sometime later, a paper was found among Lucy Westenra's belongings. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the window was closed. 
Dr. Van Helsing had directed. About two in the morning, I awakened. I went to the door, crawled out. Arthur! Arthur! There was no answer. Something's broken the window. I'm in the room, alone. I dare not go out. The house seems empty. The air is full of specks, floating, circling in the draft from the window. And the light burns blue and dim. What am I to do? Something very sweet and very bitter all around me. Nothing sinking into deep water. And there's singing in my ears. You shall be flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. Ah. September 12th. Late. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. We found her sprawled on the floor. There was a draft in the room from the broken window. Her throat was bare, showing the two wounds, looking horribly white and mangled. We are too late, my friend. We have failed. God's will be done. She's dying. Yes. She's dying. Stay beside her. It will make much difference, mark me. Whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. It was late in the afternoon before she opened her eyes. Arthur, oh my love, I'm so glad you've come. I took her hand and knelt beside her. Her breath came and went like a tired, peaceful child. And then the light from the setting sun fell on her face, and then, insensibly, a strange change came over her. Her eyes grew suddenly dull and hard. Her breathing was heavy. The mouth opened, and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look large and sharp. Arthur, oh, my love, I'm so glad you've come. Kiss me. Bend down and kiss me. Not for your life. Not for your living soul as hers. Lucy! She is dead. Poor girl. There's peace for it at last. The end. Not so. It is only the beginning. Wait and see. September 25th. A Hempstead mystery. The Kensington horror, the stabbing woman, and the woman in black are vividly recalled to mind by a series of events that have taken place recently in the neighborhood of Hempstead. Several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or failing to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases, the children have given us their excuse that they have been with a beautiful lady who offered them chocolate. In each case, the child was found to be slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wound seemed such as might be made by a rat or a small dog.
another child injured by the beautiful lady. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night was only discovered late in the morning. It has the same tiny wound in the throat. Well, Stuart, what do you think of that? Do you mean to tell me, my friend, that you still have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Nervous prostration, following great loss and waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or wasted? You are a clever man, my friend, and a good doctor. But you do not believe that there are things that you cannot understand. You are wrong, Stuart. Are you aware of all the mysteries of life and death? Can you tell me why in the pampas there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry those veins? Hmm? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on trees all day and then when the sailors sleep on deck because it is hot, flit down on them and then in the morning are found dead men as white as Miss Lucy was? I understand none of these things. After tonight, Seward, if you dare to come with me, perhaps then you will understand. September 29th. Before dawn. Now it is done. And I would sooner die a thousand deaths than live again through what I did this night. We will spend the night you and I here in this churchyard where Miss Lucy is buried. We enter the tomb. Then we open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Take care, Van Helsing. Miss Lucy is dead. Is it not so? Then there can be no wrong to her. But if she is not dead, with some difficulty, we found the West Denver tomb. I took up my place behind a yew tree. On one side of the tomb, Van Helsing on the other. Chilled and frightened. Suddenly, I saw something moving between two yew trees. A dim, white figure which held something at its breast. The figure stopped. I could not see the face, for it was bent down over what I saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire. And dreams. Then the thing saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl. The lovely blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If ever a face meant death, I saw it at that moment. Then suddenly she turned and vanished in the direction of the tomb. Child is not harmed. We leave him in a safe place where the police find him. There's more to do. Come. Now we were in the tomb. Then in the coffin. The thing lay. Like a nightmare of Lucy, the pointed teeth, a blood-stained mouth. Then Helsing never looked up. From his bag, he took out a book, his operating knives, a heavy hammer, and a round wooden stake, some two or three inches thick, sharpened to a fine point, and hardened over a fire. Stuart! The life of this unhappy woman is just begun. When she become what you call undead, there comes with the change the curse of immortality. She cannot die, but must go on age after age adding new victims because all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on others. So the circle goes on, ever widening as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. But if this lady, this undead, be made to rest as true dead 
Then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall be again free. Tell me. What am I to do? Take this stake in your left hand. The hammer in your right. Yes. Place the point over the heart. Yes. Then, when I begin the prayer for the dead, in God's name, strike. <laughs> Are you ready? Now. Domine Jesu Christe, Fili de vivi, Quim mans tuas ex voluntate patri. <laughs> <clears throat> On the morning of July 11th, a man was found on the border of Transylvania. He talked wildly of wolves and boxes of earth and blood. He gave his name as Jonathan Harker. In the hospital at Clausenburg, he improved sufficiently to make possible his removal to England. I'm still quoting from my own personal papers. But there his condition remained so serious that he was committed for observation to a private ward in my hospital at Perseid. Here he did so well that in three weeks he was completely recovered. It was during this time that his wife, Minna Harker, brought to the attention of Dr. Van Helsing and myself the journal that her husband had kept while a prisoner in the castle of a certain Count Dracula in Transylvania. I have before me the record of a meeting that took place in my study in Perseid, transcribed by Minna Harker. October 1st. Meeting began soon after 8. Jonathan next to me. Dr. Seward, opposite to Van Helsing, at the head of the table. My friends, there are such things as vampires. Had I known at first what now I know, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who love her. The vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong that he can direct all the elements. The storm, the flood, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things the moth and bat, the owl and the fox and the wolf. How, then, are we to begin our strike to destroy him? How shall we find his place? And having found it, how can we destroy him? My friends, it is a terrible task that we undertake. To fail here is not mere life or death. If we fail, we... Become as him. Foul things of the night. As him. What do you say? I answer for myself. Come me in. I'm with you. The professor laid a small golden crucifix on the table. We took hands and our solemn pact was made. My friends, we too are not without strength. The vampire flashes on the blood of the living. Without this, he cannot live. He throws no shadow. He makes no reflection in a mirror. He can transform himself to a wolf, to a bat. He can come on moonlight rays as elemental dust he can see in the dark. He can do all these things. Yet he is not free. His power ceases at the coming of the day. Then, until night, he must remain in the shape in which he finds himself... And except in his coffin home, in those earth boxes, he cannot rest. When we can confine him in his coffin, then, my friends, if we obey what we know, we will destroy him. At that moment, something flapped wildly against the window, then. Did you hit it? I don't know. 
We looked out of the window. Against the black sky, we could see nothing. Data on our position. From the Count's castle in Transylvania to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth. All of these, to our certain knowledge, were delivered at Carfax. Recently, 12 of these boxes have been removed. First step, ascertain whether all the rest remain in the deserted house next door or whether any more have been removed. We must trace each of these boxes and sterilize the earth with holy water so that he can no longer seek safety in it. And we must hurry. The events of the next few days are described in Jonathan Harker's journal. October 2nd, 5 a.m., just returned from the empty house. Left Mina here at home. Well, we've done our work at Carfax. The place was filthy. The air stagnant and foul and alive with rats. We counted the boxes. Only 38 of them. And over each one, the professor went through his same mysterious work. It was dawn when we got back. I found Mina asleep. She looks paler than usual. October 2nd. Soon after they left, I fell asleep. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs. And then there was silence. I got up and looked out of the window. There was a thin streak of white mist moving across the grass along the wall of the house. It dawned on me that the air in the room was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight came only like a tiny red spark through the fog. I could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker. Then, as I looked, the spark divided and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes. You shall be flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. October 2nd, 8 p.m. We're on the track. Twelve boxes were delivered last week to an empty house at 347 Piccadilly. My dear friend... Until the sun sets tonight, Dracula must retain whatever form he now has. We have this day to hunt out all his slayers and sterilize them. Then he will have no place where he can move and hide. But we have only until sunset. The house in Piccadilly was empty. Like the one at Percy, the same sickening smell was in the air. On the table we found a clothes brush, a brush, and a comb, and a basin. The latter containing dirty water, which was... Reddened as if with blood. The boxes are back here. Eight, nine, ten. Eleven. Only eleven. There's a twelfth box somewhere. Gentlemen, it is after six. The sun is setting. We've no time to lose. He will return at any moment. Open the boxes. Quiet. Here it is. It is he! The window! You waste your bullet, gentlemen. You think you baffle me? You with your pale faces all in a row like sheep in a butcher's. You think you have left me without a place to rest. But I have more. And time is on my side. The one you love is mine already. I have known her. 
Already my mark is on her throat. Flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. She is with me always. Over land. Or sea. October 4th morning. Another meeting in the study of Turkey. We must find that last remaining box, gentlemen. We must find it. As long as that earth exists in pure... As long as there remains one place of refuge for Dracula, there is no safety and no peace for any soul in England. And for the undead, never peace so long as he lives. Blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. Mina! How do you know that? How do you know that? It's quiet. With me. With me always. Over land and sea. Mina, darling, how did you know that Dracula said those... I don't know. The word just came... Strange. There are times when somehow I feel that I'm with him. At sunset? Yes. Just at sunset. And again at sunrise. Dr. Van Helsing, if I could... If at that time, you... Have you the courage? Courage for what? What do you mean? Dr. Van Helsing here will question her. I will question her, yes. In a state of hypnosis. The one you love is already mine, he said. She is with me always, over land or sea. Ah, Count Dracula. Perhaps she will betray you if she is really with you, this one we love. Who knows? If she is really with you, over land or sea. Blood of my blood. Nina. Yes. Answer me, Mina. Are you with him? Yes, I am with him. Where are you? I do not know. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. I can hear it on the outside. Then you are on a ship. Yes. What else do you hear? There is the creaking of an anchor what chain. What are you doing? Still. Oh, so still. It is like death. It is like death. Here is a report from Matt and Peabody. Ship brokers. Dated October 5th, according to Lloyd's List, the only sailing ship that left for the Black Sea yesterday was the Tsarina Katrina, bound for Varna. Some hours before she sailed, a man came alongside, all in black, driving a cart with a great box in it. This he lifted down, single-handed, and carried below. No one remembers having seen him after that, as heavy mist came up over Doolittle Dock until sailing time. The rest of London Harbor remained completely clear. Our plans are made. The average sailing time from London to the Black Sea is three weeks. We can travel overland to the same place in three days. We shall be there waiting for him when he arrives. October 15th, arrive barn about five o'clock. Mina seems stronger. Every morning before sunrise and just before sunset, she speaks to Van Helsing in a trance. Are you with him, Mina? Tell me, are you with him? I am with him. What can you see? Nothing. All is dark. What can you hear? I can hear the waves lapping against the ship and the water rushing by. 
the wind is high. I can hear it in the shrouds and the bow throws back the foam. So, the Tsarina Katrina is still at sea, hastening on her way to Varna. The Count cannot cross warning water, so he cannot leave the ship without being observed. What do you hear, Mina? Catholic waves and rushing water. A whole week of waiting. Daily telegrams from Lloyd's. Not yet reported. 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 Rushing water and creaking mud. Darkness. Darkness and wind. October 24. Telegram. Lloyd, London to Harker. Sorry, Nick, Katrina reported this morning. From Dardanelle. Lloyd, London to Harker. October 28th. Zarina Katrina in heavy fog reported entering Galatz Harbor at one o'clock today. Galatz! Galatz is 38 hours from here, and the first train for Galatz leaves at 6.30 tomorrow morning. My friends, we have lost... Come aboard with an order an hour before sunup. Receive a box for a party by the name of Dracula. That is Pepper's right. Uh, Emmanuel Hillsheim, his name was. Mr. Hillsheim? Yes. You went over the box yesterday. I gave it to Kyloff by order. Kyloff. Mr. Kyloff? I lost. This morning they find him dead inside the churchyard of St. Peter. They find him dead. With his throat torn open. October 30th evening. There are two ways in which Dracula can get back to his own place. By land or by water. We've examined the map and find the most likely river is the Ceres. You and I, Seward, will charter a steam launch and follow him up the river. Van Helsing and Mina will take the train to Veresti, and from there they will from go... there we shall go in the track where Harker went, from Bistritz over to Borgo. If you have not caught him before, we shall be awaiting Dracula there. <laughs> We arrived at the rest at noon, then Helsing and I. Bought a carriage here, and we start in an hour. Our enemy is still on the river. October 31st. We can run at good speed up the river at night. There's plenty of water, and the banks are wide apart. November 1st, evening. No news all day. We hear that a big boat went up the river before us, going at more than usual speed. November 4th. All day driving. The country gets wilder as we go. By morning, we shall reach the Borgo Park. November the 4th, evening. We've left the launch. We've got horses, and we follow on the track along the river. We are armed. Look! Quick! There 
now, now. Heading west. With the dawn, we could see the Slovaks some miles before us, dashing along the river with their wagons. On it is the great box. Beyond the white waste of snow was the river like a black ribbon curling. Between us and the river, not afar off, came a group of men, mounted Slovak train along. In the midst of them was a wagon which swept from side to side. On the wagon was a great box. Look! We see two horses, following fast, coming up from the south. Stuart and Parker. The Slovaks with their heavy wagon are losing their guard. Now the horsemen are not more than a mile behind. Now the wagon is quite close to us. We can see the great box swaying gravely. Now they are almost upon us. Now has happened a strange thing. The wagon smashed into a great rock dead in the snow, lost its front wheels, and turned over on its side, jammed against the stone. The horses tore loose from their traces and bolted, and the slowbucks scatter and vanish after them. Then silence. Silence like comes uh, after ringing a bell. Look, his face. It is Dracula. Sprawled out stiff and twisted in the smear of his own holy earth. The box, in falling, has emptied the dirt onto the snow. His face is old looking. The skin is like paper. Dr. Seward, there's no time. Look at the sun. Sunday. In one minute there's darkness and he is forever lost to us. Have you the stake of wood and the hammer? Yes. Now, Seward, pray for us. Kneel down and pray. Harker, the stake of wood over his heart. Be not afraid, Harker. Do not look into his eyes. The hammer. Now, Harker, strike. Strike. Flesh. Flesh of my flesh. Guilt of my guilt, death of my death, speak and be manifest in the instant of your master's peril. Elements of darkness, rain, evil wind, mist and mold and tempest. Right! Somehow I can hear him speaking behind his eyes. Claw, wing, tooth, scale, tissue of flesh, death of my death, dead and undead. The hand of the living is over your master. Console him, my children. This instant is no longer than the space between two heartbeats. But the night is not here, and I am lonely. Come to your master, my children. Beguile him now in the instant of his peril. Beguile him with the sound of your names. Claw. Wing. Tooth. Scale. Tissue of flesh. Strike, Harker, strike! There is one very dear to me who has not answered. My love... Mina, there is less than a minute between me and the night. 
You must speak for me. You must speak with my heart. Give them to me! Jonathan, give them to me! The stick of wood and the hammer! Harker! I shall never forget that moment. The look on poor Mina's face as she stood there. The angry scar standing out on her throat. Her eyes like living coals in the last red of the sunset. She had torn the stake and the hammer out of my hands with the strength of an enemy. Mina, do you know what you've done, woman? You know what you've done to us? You've released him, the evilest fiend. Look! The sun! As we looked down at Dracula, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the hate in them turned to triumph. Flesh of my flesh, come to me, my love. Come into the night and the darkness. You have served me well, my love, my bride, my... Ladies and gentlemen, all the evidence in this case is now before you. I've added nothing. And to the best of my knowledge, I've omitted nothing that might help to throw light on the extraordinary events of the year 1891, which culminated on that terrible evening in the Borgo Pass. There remains only this one last report. When Mina Hager seized the stake and hammer from her husband, I believe she was under some form of hypnosis. She herself remembers nothing. But whatever influence was at work on her, she must, at the last moment, have rejected it. For at the exact instant the sun disappeared, it was Mina Harker who drove the stake through the heart of the thing that called itself Dracula. At that same instant, even as we looked... The wound on the side of her throat was no more. As for Dracula, before the scream of the creature had died from our ears, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. In that final moment of dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. Tonight's production of Dracula by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater was the first of nine CBS broadcasts in which this brilliant group will bring to life a series of great narratives, all presented in the immediacy of the first-person singular. In presenting them each Monday evening at this time during the summer season, the Columbia Network is bringing a complete theatrical producing company to the air for the first time. And now here is the director to tell you about next week's Mercury Theater production, Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen... What are your favorite stories? If there's one you're particularly fond of and would like to hear on the air, will you please write me about it? Next week, the Mercury Theater is going to tell you Robert Louis Stevenson's exciting yarn about pirates and the sea, Treasure Island. Until then, just in case Count Dracula has left you a little apprehensive, one word of comfort. When you go to bed tonight, don't worry. Put out the lights and go to sleep. It's all right. You can rest peacefully. That's just a sound effect. There. Over there in the shadow. See? It's nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I think it's nothing. But always remember, ladies and gentlemen, there are werewolves. There are vampires. 
such things do exist. Columbia Broadcasting System. The debut of the Mercury Theater on the air, Dracula, from July 11th, 1938. And it was an auspicious beginning for the Mercury Theater. Only a week later would come one of the greatest of radio plays, Treasure Island, followed by A Tale of Two Cities, The 39 Steps, a veritable classic, and then, of course, The War of the Worlds. We'll continue our Halloween offerings with one of the most chilling episodes of Suspense. You're listening to Skywave Audio Theater. Big, musty houses are just right for ghost stories, but... Uh, How about a house so new that it isn't even finished yet? In 1946, with thousands of military personnel coming statewide and looking for housing, uh, there were a lot of houses in the works, and uh, maybe this one is just the thing for a nice young couple. But uh, what's that box overhead? And is it Halloween or Christmas? The two can be blended, I suppose. In any event, it's a question to be answered in a radio play said to be one of the scariest. Robert Taylor and Kathy Lewis star in Suspense from December 5, 1946. This is The House on Cypress Canyon. And now, Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, Roma Wines present Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor in The House in Cypress Canyon, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine. For friendly entertaining, for delightful dining. Yes, right now, a glassful would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you Robert Taylor, star of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Undercurrent, in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? <laughs> Kind of early with your greeting, aren't you, Sam? Well, I got to get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas. If this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, you, you'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But, but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. Well, you sound like it's serious. 
That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you... You know, we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm -hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All I got in were the foundations, just mm -hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. What do you want? Police protection from the mob? <laughs> Listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago, well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a, a what do you call it, a, a manuscript in it, a story, kind of, all written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, and I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. What's funny about it? Well, I, Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. House that was only just started building. All it's, right. Uh, well, listen, Sam, I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. All right, shoot. <clears throat> well, here's how it begins. Uh, to whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. What follows here will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. First, let me say that I'm a very ordinary person. My name is James A. Woods. I'm 35 years old. By profession, a chemical engineer. My wife, Ellen, was a schoolteacher when I met and married her in Indiana seven years ago. There's nothing in the past life of either one of us to suggest remotely any cause or reason for the dreadful thing that has invaded our lives. Our married life has been in no way different from that of millions of other average, reasonably happy, and congenial families. Three months ago... I was ordered by my firm to take charge of a rather minor project in Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood to be exact. The order was a sudden one. There'd been no time to secure accommodations, and conditions being what they are, the inevitable result was that until day before yesterday, we'd been living in the cramped quarters of one of those characteristic California motels. Needless to say, most of our spare time had been devoted to a search for something more permanent and comfortable, but... The fruits of these efforts had been, financially and in every other way, a geometrical progression of discouragement. Until last Saturday afternoon, only four days before Christmas. We were driving into town on our way to a movie when Ellen saw it. Jim, look. What? That sign in front of that real estate office. Oh, yeah. But yeah. don't you see what it says? For rent, furnished, two-bedroom house, close in, immediate occupancy. Yeah, uh-huh. Aren't you going to stop? Oh, Ellen, you know a sign like that. It mean right out in plain sight in front of a real estate office. Oh, yeah, but Jim... Either they want $600 a month... We'll or... never know until we ask. Well, if it's any good at all, there are probably 50 people fighting for it right back there now. Well, honey, there's no harm in trying now, is there? You really want to go back? Oh, it's probably foolish, but what can we lose? Okay. Oh, darling, come on, cheer up. How do you know? Maybe our luck's changed. Maybe fate's going to give us a nice new house for a Christmas present. Come in. Oh, uh... We're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Oh, and, yeah, uh, I hung it outside just this minute. Is... is the house available? Why, sure, sure it is. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How to do? Wow. Looks like it's fixing to rain. Yes, so it does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? 
was one of those things. The real estate agent had just been authorized to rent the place by mail that morning, and he'd hardly had time to look at it himself and put up his sign when we drove up. It was just an ordinary little California house about halfway up Cypress Canyon, number 2256. Just an ordinary, undistinguished little house. The agent didn't know much about it. Construction on it had been stopped by the war, and it had just been completed and furnished lately. It had been vacant while somebody's estate was being settled, and... Now it was owned by a bank in Sacramento. Of course, we didn't. We didn't got care this about key in the mail along with the authorization to rent. Only one there is. Of course, you can have duplicates made. Yeah, seems to stick a little. Oh, no, there it is. Doesn't sound as though that door had ever been opened. Well, a little oil on the hinges will fix that all right. Oh, sure. Now, now here's your living room. Furniture's a little dusty, of course. You've got to expect that. It's good furniture, though, you see? Benson Brothers. Yes, uh-huh. Now, over here's a little den. Panel, you see? Radio, fireplace. Really a very attractive little room, particularly for a man. Uh-huh, yep. Now, the, the bedroom's off the living room here. Everything's all on one floor, you understand? Uh-huh. It's uh, quite nice, I think. Yes, uh-huh. You can see you get the morning sun here. There's a view of the canyon through these front windows. You got cross ventilation. That's about all there was to it. It wasn't the best place in the world. It was small and badly built, but what would you have done? We took it with as little inspection as that. It was the Saturday before Christmas. And the very same evening, we were struggling up the steps from the road with suitcases and boxes and armloads of clothes and... All the endless bric-a-brac that people collect and never know they have until they move. Ellen began unpacking, and I began moving things around and taking the worst of the pictures off the wall, doing all the little things that everybody does when they move into a new place and try to give it something of their own Don't personality. Don't be such a sourpuss. You know, it's a roof over our heads for Christmas. That's more than we ever thought we'd get, isn't it? Now, what in the world are we going to do with those two pictures? Why don't we just leave them where they are? Jim, we can't. They're too awful. Well, all right, put them in the closet, then. I can't. Both the closets are jammed full. No, I mean the other one in the little alcove off the den. At least there's a door there. I suppose it's a closet. Yeah. I don't know. If that isn't a commentary on the housing problem, huh? A woman moving into a house without even knowing where all the closets are. Take the pictures down, will you, honey? Bring them in here. Okay, okay. Oh, I guess you'll have to help me with this door. I can't get it open. Let me see it. Well, of course you can, silly. It's locked. Where are those keys we found in the desk? Mm. Here they are. Mm -hmm. Nope. Not this one. Sure, this one won't work. Nope. Feels like an awful solid door for a closet. Oh, and that's one solid door in the house. Nope, this one won't do it either. Well, we'll just have to get a locksmith up here on Monday. I'll put the pictures behind the desk, okay? Yeah, yeah, all right. Jim, if you could just help me move this armchair, huh? Oh, Ellen, will you let it go until tomorrow? You know what time it is? Oh, but honey, I'd like to get the place looking just a yeah, little bit. Yeah, but it's bit. almost midnight. In fact, it's, it's exactly... What was that? <laughs> Tomcat, I guess, out in the brush somewhere. Sounded near. <laughs> oh, hope that doesn't go on all night. Well, there's much we can do about it. Come on, Ellen, I'm dead tired. All right, Jim, all right. Where'd you put the toothpaste, honey? It's right in the medicine cabinet. Oh, yeah. Jim, we ought to get some firewood tomorrow. You know a fire in that living room would make all the difference Next in the world. Cab, Sunday. Well, Monday, then. Jim, I think red curtains are what we need, don't you? Mm-hmm, mm. You know, just at least for the living room. Anyway, the ones in there now have just got to come down. Yeah, I suppose they do. What do you think of red? 
Well, I guess it's all... Jim. That's some tomcat. Jim, it... It sounded in the house. Oh, now, how could it be in the house, Ellen? We've been over every inch of the house. Except the closet. Now, how could a cat or anything else be in the closet that's been locked up for over a year? I don't know. It's... it's probably under the house. A wildcat or mountain lion or something. I hear they have them in California. Jim, I don't like well, it. Well, neither do I like it, but there's nothing we can do about it tonight. Well, maybe we ought to call somebody, the police or oh, some neighbor. Oh, don't neighbors. be silly, Ellen. You act like a kid. Come on, let's go to bed, huh? Well, all right. I suppose it is silly. Jimmy, did you lock the door? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I turn out the lights now? Yeah. All right. Good night, Ellen. Sleep tight. Good night, Jim. I don't know what time it was, perhaps an hour, perhaps only a half hour later. My mind was in that hazy borderland between sleep and a dream that's still part of consciousness. <coughs> then I was awake. <coughs> Ellen, are you all right? Yes. Did you have a nightmare or something? No. I heard it too. Well, that didn't sound like any cat. Put on the light. Yeah. It seemed to be out there, Jim, in the house somewhere. I'm going to look into this. Jim, you be careful. Come on. Where's, where's my shotgun? In the den, I think. Jim. What? There. There's something wet. What? Wet? Running from under the closet door. Sticky. Hey, Ellen, don't. Don't touch it. I had to. Jim. It's blood. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Robert Taylor in the house in Cypress Canyon. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Ken Niles for Roma Wines. These days before Christmas are busy ones indeed, yet smart hostesses everywhere find time for shopping and distinguished home entertaining later. The secret? Magnificent Grand Estate Wines. Presented by Roma, America's greatest vintner, Grand Estate Wines add distinction to your hospitality on a moment's notice. Make your holiday welcome, effortless, and in perfect taste. The brilliant clarity, full fragrance, and mellow taste of Grand Estate wines please discriminating people everywhere. For Grand Estate wines, limited bottlings by Roma, are born of choicest grapes, then patiently guided to superb taste richness by Roma vintner skill, necessary time, and America's finest winemaking resources. Delight your guests with Grand Estate California wines for entertaining Medium Sherry, Ruby Port, or Golden Muscatel. For dining, Burgundy or Sauterne. So insist on Grand Estate Wines and enjoy the crowning achievement of Vintner skill. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Robert Taylor as James A. Woods with Kathy Lewis as his wife Ellen in the house in Cypress Canyon. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
cannot be too difficult to understand from the foregoing why I've taken the pains to set down in writing the events related here. To find in one's newly rented house a closet which cannot be opened is in itself certainly no great cause for alarm. But to be awakened in the stillness of the night by unearthly cries within that house, to find oozing from under that closet door something that is unquestionably blood, that's another matter. Perhaps others might have been braver than we. Suffice it only to say that we got out of the house in something very close to a panic and only returned when we had the moral support of two stalwart Los Angeles policemen. You uh, just moved in here, you say? That's right, officer. You can, you can see we're still unpacking. And the place has been empty right along before that? Yeah, I, I don't know much about that part of it. You could check all that with the real estate agent, though. Well, uh, <clears throat> where is this closet? Oh, it's it's right in here, officer. And and the blood, the blood is... Where? Where's the blood? Jim? Officer, I, I swear to you, there was blood on the floor less than an hour ago. I, I saw it. Uh-huh. It was running out from under that door. We heard that noise, and we got up, and then we saw it. The, the door was locked. Locked, huh? Seems to be all right now. Hey, uh, you folks aren't trying to be funny, are you? Is, isn't there anything in it? No, ma'am, there is not. Look, officer, we're reputable people. You can call my firm. They'll tell you all about me. There's nothing wrong with this closet. Walls are solid. No trap doors. If you think I'm lying... I didn't say that, mister. Oh, you probably did hear some sort of a noise, and you got a little panicky, and... What, uh... what about the blood? It got on my hand. It isn't there now, is it? Yes. Where? I, I feel it. <laughs> now, you folks, just take it easy. You know, you're liable to hear all kinds of noises up in these canyons at night. You're uh, from the east, you say? Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm sorry, officer. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. If you have any real trouble, call on us any time. All right. Well, good night. Good night. Good night. Hey. <laughs> You ought to have this door fixed. That's enough to scare you. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have it fixed. We didn't say much about it after that. There wasn't much that could be said. The next day, I went down to a lot and bought a little Christmas tree and some trimmings, and we tried to pretend we were cheerful, but there was an uneasiness between us that had never been there before. Ellen seemed tired and listless. Several times during the day, I noticed her washing her hands with a, with a brush, scrubbing the one that had touched the blood. That night, we each took a sleeping pill and went to bed. It was sometime after midnight when I was suddenly wide awake and staring into the darkness. In some way, I, I knew at once and instinctively what had awakened me. Ellen was not in her bed nor in the room. The nameless thing I feared gripped at my heart until I could scarcely breathe. I opened the bedroom door and started through the house, putting on every light that I could find. There was not much to search, but I searched thoroughly. The, the living room, the kitchen, bathroom, den, even the garage. And all the time, the dread of looking where I knew at last I must look. For I think I knew from the very first time where I'd find her. It must have been a full minute that I stood before that closet door. Then, I opened it. She stood there rigid, her arms at her sides, the fingers extended like claws. Her hair was over her face, her eyes stared out of it. Her lips were drawn back in a grin like an animal at bay. 
For a moment, I was frozen with the horror of it. I stretched out my hand. <gasps> Very deliberately, she turned her head and sunk her teeth until they met into the flesh of my forearm. I'd raised my hand to strike at her, but already she'd relaxed her hold and gone utterly limp. She would have fallen unless I'd caught her. I carried her into the bedroom and laid her on the bed. Strangely, at that moment, my only thought was how I might revive her. Until I saw that it was, it was not a faint, but a sleep that she'd fallen into. Sleep as deep and heavy as though she'd been drugged. And so I left her. But for me, that night, there was no sleep. Yes, Ellen? Oh. What are you doing up so early? Oh, I, I got a little restless. I'd make some coffee. Oh. Oh. I had the most wonderful sleep. And I feel so rested. Do you? Mm-hmm. Jim. What? What's the matter with your arm? Oh, I I just heard it. It's, it's terribly swollen. Let me see it. No, it, it's all right, Ellen. Oh, it isn't all right. You've got to see Dr. Wesley right away. Sure, I, I will. No, I now, will. you promise me, Jim, that you'll go the first thing this morning. How'd it happen? Why, oh, uh, th th there was a dog. A dog? Yeah, I, I heard him trying to chew through the screen door. I went out to chase him away, and he bit me. Well, you mean there was all that racket, and I didn't even wake up? No, Ellen, you... You didn't even wake up. It was clear to me that Ellen knew nothing of what had transpired the night before. I went to my office that morning and made a pretense of going over routine business, if only to restore my mind to some semblance of calm by the sight and sound of common, familiar things. The pain in my arm had become a persistent, dull throbbing. I made a late appointment with Dr. Wesley... He treated my arm with something of an arched eyebrow, and he said, Well, I've never seen anything quite like it before. That is such a rapid onset of infection. It was dark when I left his office. I hadn't realized it was so late. Driving home my car seemed, seemed sluggish until I saw the needle on the dashboard and realized that I was pushing it to the utmost of its speed. I was racing home to prevent... And something before it was too late for the darkness had conspired against me. For somehow I already knew with certainty that it was the darkness and the night that I had to fear. The curves of the canyon seemed endless. And then the cold fear leaped up inside me. My house, too, was dark. I went slowly up the stone steps from the road, looking, praying for some sign of light or light. There was none. The house was empty. Ellen was gone. I, I looked with the same self-torturing thoroughness and in that closet first of all, knowing as I did so that it was hopeless. And so, alone in that empty house, I waited, powerless and helpless now, deadened in thought and will, empty as the house itself, save only for the overwhelming sense of a terrible foreboding. For some time in the early hours of the morning... I snapped on the radio, shortwave. Why? Surely a minor question now. I only know that I did. 
And then I heard it. Car 58, car 58, go to Laurel Canyon, the 4,000 block. A report that a man has been injured or attacked. Condition thought to be critical. Ambulance will follow. That is all. I was there almost before the police, edging my way through the little crowd, staring down at the man lying there in his white uniform under the street light. Yeah, the milkman, poor guy. I heard him scream, but when I got here, just like this, it's all nothing right, stand back, stand back. Please, please stand back. Well, you again. I, I heard it on the radio. I, I live just down the road. Yeah, yeah, I remember. What, what happened? Well, take a look. Maybe you can tell us. He was dead. And he was lying on his back. And his throat had been torn out as though by the fangs of some wild animal. It is now Christmas Eve, or rather Christmas morning, for it's a little after midnight. I've been waiting here, here in the stillness of this empty house for nearly 24 hours, waiting for the end. Already once tonight, I've heard that dreadful wailing cry somewhere in the hills. I've nailed up the closet door, but that I, I know is childish and useless. My arm is horribly swollen and turning black, but that's nothing. It's another end that I foresee, as, as surely as other men foresee the rising of the sun. I hear the cry again. It's nearer now. I shall leave these notes in a sealed envelope and put it in a shoebox in the hope that someone will give credence to these dark and terrible events, if indeed such nameless horrors can ever yield to mortal understanding. As for myself, I feel no longer any fear or even sorrow, only a desire that the end and the thing that I must do may come soon. And it will be soon, I know. Yes, but there is someone at the door. Someone at the door. Huh? What do you make of it, Sam? <laughs> it's quite a yarn. But what of it? That's what I thought. Now listen, that's not quite all of it. Huh? Clip to it's a newspaper clip. Listen. Hollywood, December the 26th. Police reported what was apparently a case of murder and suicide in Cypress Canyon sometime in the early hours of the morning. The victims were James A. Woods, a chemical engineer, and his wife, Ellen. Preliminary investigation indicates that Mrs. Woods was killed by the blast of a shotgun in the hands of her husband, who then turned the weapon upon himself. That she fought desperately for her life, however, was evidenced by the disorder of the room and the severe lacerations inflicted upon her husband about the neck and arms. This is the second tragedy to be reported in Cypress Canyon within 24 hours, the other being the unexplained death of Frank Polanski, a milkman. Well, no such murders or whatever they were ever occurred, if that's what's worrying you. The clipping, well, have those things printed up, you know. No, no, it's not that, Sam. That story was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. No number, no nothing, just a framework. Uh-huh. Now that house is finished. When I drove by it today, well, that's what stopped me, Sam, because it all fits. 
Now that it's finished, it is the house in the story, the same construction, the same vines and creepers on the lawn, even the same number. So what? A guy who knows roughly what this house is going to be like writes a yarn and loses it or something. Did he know the place was going to be listed for rental today, the Saturday before Christmas? <laughs> oh, Jerry, coincidence. Two bits you find the guy next door is a ghost story writer or something, and he's been wondering for a year what happened to that thing he wrote. Okay. Okay, coincidence. Well, I, I'm sorry I bothered you, Sam. <laughs> Don't be silly. I liked it. It's a good yarn. Uh, that the uh, for rent sign you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put it up outside now. Uh-huh. Well, so long, Jerry, and Merry Christmas again. No, well, thanks, Sam. <laughs> I guess I was kind of silly, all right. <laughs> Listen, when a guy named uh, whatever it is, Woods, with a wife named Ellen, comes in to rent that place from you, then you can start worrying. <laughs> yeah. Well, so long, Sam. So long, Jerry. Come in. Oh, we're sorry to bother you, but we just happened to see that for rent sign outside. Well, yeah, I hung it out just this minute. Is... is the house available? Oh, sure, sure it is. Let me introduce myself. My name is James A. Woods, and this is my wife, Ellen. How do? Well, looks like it's fixing to... Yes, it does, doesn't it? Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, Roma Wines, selected for your pleasure from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines. Tonight's show marks the third birthday of Suspense on the Air, and this is Ken Niles asking our star of the evening, Robert Taylor, to help us celebrate. Why didn't you tell me before, Ken? If I'd only known, I'd have baked a cake. Well, Bob, all suspense parties are surprise parties. As an old hand on suspense, uh, you know that in our plays, the tables are usually turned on the star. So tonight, although it's our birthday, we're going to give you a present. Here it is, a gift basket of Grand Estate California wines from Roma, America's greatest vintner, to our distinguished anniversary guest, Robert Taylor. Thanks, Ken. You turn a nice table. And you can set a nice table with Grand Estate Burgundy in your basket, Bob. For Grand Estate Burgundy means rare dining pleasure adds memorable distinction to holiday dinner. Even everyday meals are outstanding in taste when Grand Estate Burgundy is served. Yes, all Grand Estate wines presented by Roma are limited bottlings of outstanding taste excellence. That I know about Grand Estate wines, Ken. But did you know that for Grand Estate wines, Roma selects only the choicest grapes? Then the ancient skill of Roma master vintners, necessary time, and America's finest winemaking resources guide the cuvee of this grape treasure to rich taste luxury. That's why discriminating wine users everywhere look to grand estate wines as the crowning achievement of vintner skill. Reason enough. And now, Ken, who's all set to star on Suspense next Thursday? It's that very wonderful actress and wonderful girl, Miss Susan Peters. Susan will appear as a young lady in straitened circumstances who finds herself mistaken for a very rich young lady and who is forced into continuing the deception 
with murder as a result. Well, I'll certainly make it a point to listen. And uh, before I go, I'd like to thank this really great company of actors who have played with me tonight, and particularly Kathy Lewis, who played Ellen. Thank you, Bob. Tonight's original suspense play was written by Robert L. Richards. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Miss Susan Peters as star of Suspense. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A cute little starter home for James A. Woods and his wife, Ellen. A starter home that's a starting place for terror. Terror to come in the future. Uh, that was The House on Cypress Canyon, suspense from December 5th, 1946, with Robert Taylor and Kathy Lewis, and an opening and closing featuring Howard Duff and Hans Conried. Let's take a look at another place that's just right for the supernatural. Our final stop, the Inner Sanctum. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Well, just as good as a musty old house for a ghost story, that cleanest of places, a hospital at night. It's large, it's uh, kind of spooky, and there are mysterious things going on there. And at night, do they not call it the graveyard shift after all? But then, um, just about any place is creepy when it's inhabited by Boris Karloff, who blended the genteel with the horrible. And tonight he is Mr. John Clay, who finds himself in a hospital where physical difficulties give way to mental ones. Our story is called The Corridor of Doom, and it comes from the inner sanctum of October 23, 1945. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries, starring Boris Karloff. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host. Welcome again through the squeaking door to another session of mystery, murder, and madness. Oh, excuse me if I don't get up, but I'm all worn out. Yes, I've had a hectic few days with an old friend who just blew into town. He's one of those earnest souls who insists on doing everything for himself. Consultations with the monument makers, the grave diggers... Fittings of the coffin maker. Yes, quite a busy body. But then we only die once, you know. <laughs> oh, these friends of yours, they're such unhappy people. They never seem to enjoy life. Never seem interested in any of the quiet, peaceful, good things of life. For instance, what's the use of telling one of your spooky characters about Lipton tea? They wouldn't like it. 
But other people enjoy that brisk Lipton flavor. They settle back in an easy chair and say to themselves, Mmm, Lipton certainly has a rich, hearty flavor. Never the least bit wishy-washy. No siree. But would a ghost appreciate Lipton's? Indeed, he would not. And it's lucky Lipton's is made for real, live folks who like good things. Or else it wouldn't be the world's largest-selling brand of tea. Mary, you've been very hard on my friends. Very. And they won't like it. But then most live folks don't enjoy being scared to death. And that's just what's going to happen to you tonight. Our story is called The Corridor of Doom. It's an original radio play written by Robert Newman. And our star tonight is a man who gives even me the shakes. The famous star of stage, screen, and radio, Boris Karloff. Have you thought about death lately? Not the fact that it's inevitable, that it must come to all of us someday, but rather how it will come. Do you think of it as a sleep and a waking, of a sudden transition from one state of being to another, or to a state of non-being? John Clay was one of those people who never thought about it at all, until he found himself walking down that dim and endless passage which... But suppose we let Boris Karloff in the role of John Clay tell you about it himself. If your blood pressure will take it, put out the lights and come on a little trip down the corridor of doom. When I woke up, I had no idea of where I was or how I'd gotten there. I was lying on a hard white bed in a clean white room. There was a dull pain in my abdomen. Touching it tentatively, I felt a bandage. So that was it. An operation. But for what? And where was I? At that moment, the door opened. And she came in. Good afternoon. Or is it evening? Whichever you prefer. It doesn't matter. My name's Clay. John Clay. Yes. And yours? You can call me Nada. Exactly. Where am I? In what hospital? It has no name. What? But that's ridiculous. I'd like to speak to Dr. Rogers. If you'll get him for me, please. There is no Dr. Rogers. At least, not here. Then who operated on me? And for what? Listen... I'm not a well man. I've a very bad heart. Will you get someone who can talk to me? If you wish. I'll call Dr. Stone. A chill crept through my bones. It wasn't cold. It was fear. Unreasoning and abysmal fear. The door opened again. And there stood a heavy-set man, his hair flecked with grey. And with him, my son-in-law, Alex Bartlett. Alec, I can't tell you how glad I am to see you. Hello, Father. But why are you standing out there? Why don't you come in? Oh, no. No, I... I shouldn't advise it, Mr. Clay. And why not? And why... Oh, was it you who operated on me? Yes. I'm Dr. Stone. Why wasn't Dr. Rogers called in? He's taken care of me for years. There wasn't time. It happened during the night. Acute appendicitis. And even as it was... Even as it was? What? And why are you dressed that way, Alec? All in black. 
Well, it's customary. After all, you are my father-in-law. Of course I am, but... Now, look, Alec. You've got to stop being so mysterious. You know about my heart, what any sudden shock will do. I don't think you need worry about that anymore, Mr. Clay. And as far as the mystery is concerned, this initial period of adjustment is always a little difficult. Difficult? Do you realize what it's like, lying here helpless, completely isolated, as if I were all alone in the world, or... Isn't there someone I can talk to? Some of the other patients? Not just yet. When the time comes, you'll meet them. But... Look, Doctor, I can't stand much more of this. I can't. If I don't find someone who really cares about me, who'll treat me like a normal human being... My dog. How about my dog? What do you think, Doctor? Yes, that's possible. We'll see what we can do, Mr. Clay. Come along, Bartlett. Goodbye, Father. You... You'll be back, won't you, Alec? I don't know. I'll try, but it's difficult. Very difficult. Then then don't go, Alec. Don't leave me here all alone. Come back. Come back. I waited and watched. Watched and waited. Then the door opened and there was the doctor again. There was a small, thin-faced man with him this time, wearing the white coat of an orderly and carrying a black box with a handle. My dog. You brought my dog. All right, Martin. Give it to him. Yes, sir. Here you are, sir. Thank heaven. Now, at least. Come on, Carrie. Come on, boy. Get up. Wake up. Boy, what's the matter? Carrie. He's not asleep. He's dead. You wanted him, Mr. Clay. But... But why didn't you tell me? When did he die? How? How old was he? Eleven and a half. Maybe twelve. Pretty old for a dog. That's probably why he could come. What do you mean? What are you trying to do to me? Don't you realize I'm a sick man? Easy, easy, Mr. Clay. I won't take it easy. I won't stay here another minute. I'm leaving right now. Sorry, but I don't think we can permit Oh, well, we'll see about that. You're getting yourself all upset for no reason, Mr. Clay. Making it very difficult for the rest of us. Martin, you'd better let me have some of that that bottle there. About ten cc's. The uh, red medicine? Yes. I... I don't want any medicine. I won't take it. Now, please, Mr. Clay. I won't, I tell you. No, I, I don't want the... I... It, oh, it's awful. Salty. It... It tastes like... Yes. But I think you'll find that it will make things much easier for you. Very much easier. You're, you're doping me up. That's what you're doing. Putting me to sleep. You... I think that when I wake up, I'll, I'll forget about everything. Yes, Mr. Clay. You'll forget about everything. Everything. I was somewhere deep down under the earth. It was a passageway. Stone flagged and with stone walls, and I was walking slowly down it in my bare feet. I could feel the chill of the cold stones through the thick layer of dust. The passageway stretched ahead of me endlessly, 
And suddenly, I noticed that there were doors set into the walls on either side, closed doors. And on each door, there was a name. Abel, Abercrombie, Abington. Where was I? What was this place? What was behind those awful, ominously closed doors? Something seemed to be drawing me on, on down the terrible passageway. Addison, Agar, Alan. I could feel the cold creeping up my legs, higher and higher, my heart pounding faster and faster. And suddenly I knew, knew where I was and where I was going. Knew what was waiting for me there ahead of me down the passage. Exerting all my will, I turned, tried to go back. With a roaring in my ears, I was falling through the darkness. Falling, falling. When I opened my eyes, I was in that cold, white room again, clutching the blankets with trembling hands. How do you feel now, Mr. Clay? You cried out, sir, as if... A dream. The most awful, horrible nightmare I ever had. A dream? The doctor will be very interested. Would you care to tell me all about it? Oh, I don't even want to think about it. It was about your former life? Former life? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I meant... Here, where are you going? Get my clothes to get out of here. I won't stay but here. But you can't go. You can't, Martin. Help me. Please, oh, let go. Let go. Let go. Don't, you... Oh, don't you realize that if I do stay here, if I dream that dream again... Listen. I was in a passageway. An endless, eternal passageway like a corridor of doom. It stretched on and on to infinity with doors, closed doors on either side. And on each one of the doors in alphabetical order, there was a name name of all those who had died since the beginning of time. I was walking down that corridor on my bare feet and... Why? Why are you looking at me that way? You mustn't talk about that. You mustn't, do you hear? But, but you asked me... You didn't dream that dream. You couldn't have. And you've got to get it out of your mind. We, we'll help you. We'll give you a massage. That should make you relax. The alcohol, Martin, right over there. Yeah, a massage? You think that'll help? If it doesn't, we'll call Dr. Stone. Try something else. Martin. I see. Now what? What are you staring at? Your... Your feet. Hmm? On the soles. Dust. Thick, gray dust. <gasps> dust. Like the dust in the passage. The corridor of doom. And that means... It wasn't a dream. It means... I was really there. Dirty feet on those nice, clean sheets. No wonder our friend the nurse seemed so upset. Or was that the reason? Maybe she was just disappointed that he still hadn't told her about his operation. Yes, that always has them in stitches. Great big stitches, like the ones they take in a shroud. Mr. Host, I'm afraid I just can't believe this story. I can't believe that it really happened. Is that so, Mary? Do you think Mr. Clay got that gray dust in his feet because he has feet of clay? Hmm? <laughs> there you go again, always looking on the discouraging side of things. 
I really do believe I'd rather talk to cheerful folk, like those nice young men and women who sang that new Lipton tea song when I was at the studio, Sing a Song of Lipton's. Yes, that's the way people ought to feel about tea. Because, you know, when you're feeling discouraged or tired, there's nothing quite like that brisk flavor of Lipton tea to perk you up. Yes, brisk means that Lipton's is never wishy-washy. No, no, no siree, as they say in the song. So when you've had a busy afternoon, or maybe when friends drop in for a little talk, pour yourself a cup of cheer with brisk-flavored Lipton tea. It's got a special flavor that always tastes like home. And it always tastes like more, too. Well, now I think it's about time to take another little walk. Yes, down the corridor of doom. With our star, Boris Karloff. And by the way, don't be concerned about getting too tired, because you'll only have to walk one way. That's the nice part of a trip like that. You don't have to worry about coming back. <laughs> I lay there, staring down at my feet. No, it had not been a dream. But there, on my feet, was the thick, heavy dust from the corridor of doom. I had been there. Walking down its awful silence, not in my mind, but in the flesh. My heart clenched like an icy fist that I threw the blankets aside, started to get up. Mr. Clay, what are you doing? Where are you going? Let me go. But you can't get up. You can't leave. Oh, no, let me go. Martin, quick, say... help me. Please, Mr. Clay. Oh, for heaven's sake, let me go. Don't you realize what this means? If it wasn't a dream, and if I stay here, go down to that horrible place We've again... We've got to make him quiet down. Some more of that medicine, Martin. Oh. Another 10 cc. Right. Oh, oh no, no more of that. It's here, Mr. Clay. You must take it. You must. It will make you sleep. Sleep so soundly that you won't be able to go down there again. No, but... All right. Give it to me. Here. You stay here, Martin. I'll go get Dr. Stone and tell him. Better, Mr. Clay? I don't know. Color. Dark red. Taste. It's like... Yes, I know. It makes me sleepy. My eyes get heavy and... Have you been here for a long time, Martin? No, not long. What... What is it like... outside of this room? It's... strange. Like no place else. And the other patients? What are they like? They're strange, too. Listen, Martin... I'm a rich man. You're the only friend I've got here. You, you've you got to help me. Whether you're rich or poor doesn't matter. As for helping you, that's what I'm here for. You've got to stay here. Watch me. Every minute. My heart. I don't think it'll stand much My first sensation was one of cold, numbing cold, creeping up my limbs. I reached for the blankets, couldn't find them. Then I opened my eyes, and I was there again, back there in that awful endless passage, that corridor of doom. The same stone wall, stone floor, covered with a thick layer of dust. The same doors with a name on each one on both sides of me. But now... Now I was up to the bees. That one there, Baba, next with Babbitt and then Backer. I tried to cry out, but I couldn't utter a sound. I tried to stop, check myself. 
My muscles didn't respond. Slowly, heavily, I continued walking on down that endless passage, past Badger, Baffin, Bagley, past the bees and towards the seas, towards a door with my name on it. My heart pulsed, pounding with terror, my breath rasped in my throat. Convulsively, I clutched at the walls, forced myself completely around. Then, as if I were fighting against a roaring gale, I drove myself back. One step I took, two, three, and I stumbled. I was falling again, falling through darkness, complete, absolute, unending. Even before I opened my eyes, I knew where I was. Back in my room, the sheets crumpled in my sweating hands. I lay there for a moment. I knew that this was my last chance. Goodness, I knew where I was. Back in my room, the sheets crumpled in my sweating hands. Slipped out of bed, tiptoed to the door of the room, opened it a crack and peered out a hospital corridor. And sitting at a desk halfway down at the nurse. Could I slip past her? Then on a table next to the door, I saw the telephone. A telephone! Now I could get help. Reach someone who would save me. Take me out of this place. Picking it up quietly, I dialed my daughter's number. Alec Bartlett's wife. Hello? Jane? Oh, thank heaven. Hello? Jane, it's your father. Listen, you've got to help me. You've got to come and get me. I'm at the hospital. Alex Hello? knows where... Hello, is anyone there? Yes, can't you hear me? Didn't you hear what I said? It's your father and... Jane, Jane! Hung up. I heard her, but she couldn't hear me. Something wrong with the phone, her phone. I've got to get hold of somebody, somebody, but who? Dr. Rogers? Oh, might be out. And if they come in while I'm phoning... Oh, I know, of course. Police headquarters, Ryan speaking. Hello, police. This is John Clay of Riverside Road. I'm at the hospital. I don't know where. Hello? Can't you hear me, officer? For heaven's sake, listen. It's a matter of life and death. John Clay at a hospital. My son-in-law, Alec Bartlett, can tell you where. Hello? Officer, officer, listen. Don't hang up. Don't. Officer, officer, Hello? Anything the matter, Mr. Clay? Uh, Dr. Stone, uh, your telephone, there's, there's something wrong with it. No, Mr. Clay, there's nothing wrong. Not with the telephone. But, but I tried to make two calls. Two different numbers, and... I know. And you should have known. Nurse, all of them. Should have known what? Why couldn't they hear me when I could hear them? Why? Yes, Dr. Stone? Will you put Mr. Clay back into bed? No. I'm awfully sorry, sir. I only went out for a minute. No. Come on, Mr. Clay. No, no, please. leave me alone. Please, Mr. let Clay, go. Please. No, no, you're struggling. You know that, don't you? Yes, I know. Doctor, I won't have to go back down there again, will I? Down to the corridor? That's not up to me. All right, nurse. I think we're ready for another dose, the final one. Yes, doctor. 
No, doctor. No, not that red medicine. Not again. I'm sorry, but you've had a lot of time. All the time we can give you. All right, Mr. Clay. No, I won't Here. take it. You know what it means, doctor. I go back down there again to the corridor. It'll be to the letter C. To the place where my name is. If he won't take it by himself, perhaps you'd better help her, Martin. Yes, sir. No, yes. no, no, I won't. <laughs> Again, I knew where I was before I opened my eyes. I could feel the dust under my bare feet and through the dust, the biting chill of the cold stones. I was there, back in the corridor, walking down its silent length past the blank, closed doors. But the names on the doors, now they were all C's. Cabot, Cadden, Cahoon. On I walked, the beating of my heart, the pounding of my pulse loud in my ears. On down the passage... No longer even trying to fight against what I knew was inevitable. On past Cameron, Chelsea, Chiswick, and then, suddenly, terribly, one door. A door with my name on it, gaping, waiting for me. I tried to stop, to turn, but my legs carried me forward. I was but two doors away. I could see into it now, see that it contained nothing. Absolutely nothing, not even a coffin, just stone walls and a flat stone stab. I was turning, turning to step over the threshold. I made a last convulsive effort. Merciful heavens, help me, save me! Ah! All right, Martin, pick him up. Yes, sir. Is it all over? Hello, Bartlett. In at the death, eh? I'll see if there's any pulse, of course, but... I should think it is all over. It is, Stone, but not the way you think. What? Clay! He, he's not dead. No thanks to you. All right, get him up, both of you. Here, Mr. Clay, let me help you. It's all right, Martin. I'll be fine from now on. But how... Don't look so surprised, Alec. Mr. Martin is a detective. I hired him some time ago. <laughs> you see, I had a feeling that something was wrong when that railing broke accidentally, and I took that bad fall. So I decided I should investigate. You can't prove it. You can't prove anything. The first results of Martin's investigation showed me what bad financial shape you were in. And it was then that I realized that you had actually been trying to murder me to get hold of my money. So I faked that story of having a very bad heart. You, you mean it? I thought it would give you the idea of trying something more subtle and less dangerous. And it certainly did. But you still can't prove anything, not a thing. No, don't you worry about that. Don't forget. Come back here, Bartlett. You'll never have a chance to prove it. Come back, Bartlett. Oh, you shot him, killed him. Well, I, I couldn't have. I, I fired up in the air to get him to stop. Come on. But I, I don't understand it. Uh, got a mark on him. But he is dead. He was the one who had the bad heart. That's what gave me the idea of pretending. Good heavens, look. At what? This hallway was supposed to be the corridor of doom. When I reached the door with my name on it, I was supposed to die. Look. Look at the name on that door there. The one right next to him. Bartlett. His name. So what? Nothing, Martin. Nothing at all. Thank you.
do you think old Dr. Stone got the idea for that little alphabetical graveyard? That's right, for me. Huh? You don't believe me? Then come on home with me tonight and I'll show you the one in the cellar of my house. What's more, I'll show you a door and a neat stone slab with your name on it. Nonsense, Mr. Host. Mr. Clay just explained that the whole thing was a hoax. And I'm not going to sit here and hear you say otherwise. Well, then don't sit. Stand up and we'll take a walk, Mary Bennett. Yes, back to your name. Back to the bees. Baker Bartlett Bennett. <laughs> you don't scare me. Yeah? Well, how would you like it if we went to the L's and found a door marked Lipton? Oh, why, that's fine. Inside, we'd find a wonderful, friendly beverage, Lipton's, the tea with the brisk flavor, the tea that's welcome at all hours of the day. Yes, the largest selling brand of tea in the whole world, Lipton tea. And our word of advice. If you should wake up tonight with a sudden chill, find yourself walking barefoot down a dusty stone corridor with doors on both sides of it, don't get excited. Just insist on a doom with a view. <laughs> by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is The Whistling Legs by Roman McDougall. Yes, in next week's Inner Sanctum story, directed by Hyman Brown and brought to you by Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup, Next week's story is about women. Yes, two women who like to be treated rough. Choke them to death, shoot them, murder them. They love you for it. And who do you think is going to be their boyfriend? Hmm? <laughs> That's right. Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff will be with us again next week because who else could love such women? So if you're in a tender mood, tune in next Tuesday. Until then, good night. Pleasant dreams? Mm? It's wonderful how quick and easy cooking can be these days. I guess some of you remember when it used to take half a day to make a pot of chicken noodle soup. But now we have Lipton's noodle soup mix. You might say Lipton's takes no time at all to prepare, and yet it has a, a fresh cooked chickeny taste, a real old-fashioned homemade flavor. Yes, and it's brimful of tender golden egg noodles. Lipton's is grand for quick meals, and it's also a perfect beginning for the most elaborate dinner. So don't forget to serve Lipton's noodle soup. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. You got a couple of twists at the end there. If you ever saw the Twilight Zone episode called 22, it might have come to mind in that bit of hospital gothic called The Corridor of Doom. Boris Karloff starred 
in the inner sanctum from October 23, 1945. And that's your last stop in our Chamber of Horrors for tonight. I'm Norman Gilliland, and I hope you'll enjoy the waning minutes of your Halloween and that you'll join me again next week for more from Skywave Audio Theatre.